0: Thank you, Meg, and thank you again to the Edwards family for looking after us with our worship this morning, and, and morning, everyone. Um, just as I get myself set up, we are doing, we're continuing on with Lenten practices this morning, and to be honest, I've got an easy one. We talked about feasting this morning, uh, so there's plenty of talk about food. So as I get myself set up, I want you to turn to the person next to you very briefly and tell them what your favourite food is, and if they already know, I want you to think a bit more deeply about perhaps where it was that you had your best or most memorable meal. Go for it for a second. How did you go, I wonder? One of the uniquely things about being human is we've all got different taste buds, don't we? So I'm sure there was maybe, you know, some steak in there. I'm sure there's people that enjoy a nice Thai green curry. There's others that might gravitate to a water decadent dessert. Um, it's interesting to think as we start this morning that, that God could have just made food as fuel. But instead, he has gifted us with the most amazing, incredible array of flavours in the world. Uh, it's, it's quite a gift. Um, and author Tim Chester puts it this way. like. He says that the world is more delicious than it needs to be. Uh, it's just a measure of God's grace that we get this incredible array of flavours when it comes to food. Um, but for my wife, the answer is pretty simple, to ask that question of favourite meal. And uh, uh, she always says it's a past a chocolate donut from the Port Elliot Bakery. And she's made it very clear, that's my wife on the right there, uh, she's made it very clear to me that uh, it want, it, she needs that to be her last meal on earth. So uh, evidently, if, if she's ever on her deathbed, I need to make a two-hour round trip to Port Elliot. Uh, so that's just something that I've, I've got at the back of my mind. Uh, but for me, actually, it's, it's this photo here. And this happened during the week. I can't think of anything better than what we did on Thursday night. Uh, it just so happened that I had a birthday during the week and we went out to a Korean barbecue place in the city, one of our favorite places to go. And for me, honestly, there's something about the flavours of Korean barbecue that bring the senses alive. I think it's all the spices. Uh, I love the interactivity of it um, and the great conversation you have as you pile all of this food onto a table that's way too small to fit it all on. Uh, But there's just something really beautiful about those kind of moments. So uh, that was me feasting on Korean barbecue uh, during the week. But I need to be clear that as we talk about this next kind of practice, a Lenten practice of feasting, that it's quite different from some of the others that we've talked about over the last few weeks. Because when you think about it, the practices that we have gone through over the last few weeks have all involved something of us. They've required commitment in a sense. Um, There's a sense that confession requires courage to be able to do that. Uh, prayer requires our time and commitment. Almsgiving requires generosity. Fasting, clearly, requires discipline. But feasting—none of us really need any encouragement to feast, do we? This is something that comes pretty naturally to us, and that's because there's something uniquely human about the way that we prepare and enjoy food. And that's just not, 1212. All right, we're back. Ah, it's never a dull moment, is it? All right. So what I was saying was that there's something uniquely human about the way that we prepare uh, and enjoy food. We know that animals love their food, of course, don't we? I mean, I've got a dog at home. I know that Missy loves her food, but I've actually never seen her out in the backyard with a mortar and pestle combining spices to make a beautiful curry or mixing, you know, salt and sugar and flour and yeast to create dough for bread. Animals love their food, but they don't do that kind of stuff. It's a uniquely human experience to cook and creatively combine flavours and enjoy beautiful food. It's actually a unique way that we get to reflect the image of God in us. It's a creative and beautiful way that we get to cultivate God's goodness, His creativity, His creation. And food is so evocative, isn't it? I mean, even in the very short conversations we had just then, I'm sure there are some special memories in your life somewhere that are connected to food. Places that you've been, things you've experienced for the first time, people that you've spent time with, maybe something you've tried for the first time that was absolutely exquisite, or perhaps absolutely disgusting. Um, Has anyone tried durian? Oh, I was going to say you know what I'm talking about, but there's always one that's tried it and loves it. Um, Just terrible, terrible fruit. Anyway, that will get me sidetracked. But we have family traditions that revolve around food, recipes that are handed down from generation uh, to generation. Seemingly, every significant family event or cultural event that we have involves food it's so central to the way that we live and clearly this isn't just for us as well isn't it not just for us here uh, not just for us in Australia this food is a universal language the invitation to share food around a table is central in every culture around the world a meaningful one in every culture around the world uh, last year, if you remember, we did a series on vocation and Josh at the time, I think he kicked off our series talking about faith and work uh, by using a beautiful quote from a, a lady by the name of Dorothy Sayers and it's something that I've used before as well. And She says that, um, that the very first demand that a carpenter's religion makes upon him should be that he should make great tables. Do you remember that vaguely? A carpenter should make great tables and that might seem like kind of an abstract thought to you that faith and tables might be interconnected in some way. But here's the reason why. Simon Kerry Holt, uh, and I'll bring this quote up, a theologian and a professional chef, uh, and therefore uniquely qualified to speak on this topic, says this, I think it's on the next slide. He says that it's through the daily practice of the table that we live a life worth living. Through the table, we know who we are, where we come from, what we value and believe. At the table, we learn what it means to be family and how to live in responsible, loving relationships. Through the table, we live our neighborliness and citizenship, express our allegiance to particular places and communities and claim our sense of home and belonging. At the table, we celebrate beauty and and we express solidarity with those who are hungry and broken. It's a significant place, the table. And I think what he's trying to say there is that the practice of sharing a table together, sharing meals together, feasting together, shapes us profoundly. It's one of the most forming experiences that we have in life. So maybe the first thing to say this morning is this that we should never overlook or underestimate the opportunity that we get to share a mealtime, to share a table with the people in our lives. You know sometimes food and meal times and we're all guilty of this at times. Meals and food can just serve a utilitarian purpose. We eat because we have to. We eat because we're hungry. We eat because if we don't we'll die. You know there's a utilitarian purpose about food, but it's so much more than that. Meal times are an intensely forming place and they're an intensely forming experience for us. So let's not underestimate the power of the table. And it's also important to understand that it's not just a good idea, but actually the idea of feasting, of sharing the table, of sharing meals together is a deeply biblical concept and etched right through the whole of the biblical story. Again, Tim Chester, who I mentioned earlier, an author and a pastor, um, he poses a really interesting question. It's something I want you to wrestle with this morning, just very briefly. I'm going to bring the question up here. The question he raises is this. How would you complete this sentence? The Son of Man came... Dot, dot, dot. What did the Son of Man come to do? Just turn with the person next to you again for a second. How would you finish that sentence? Go for it. All right, how'd you go? I feel like I want to test you to see whether you got the right answer or not, but I'm not going to do that to you. All right, so here we go. Michael Frost, who's kind of talking about this as well, um, an Australian missiologist and author, uh, says that there's there's three ways that the New Testament answers this question. The Son of Man came, and the first one is this. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That's quite familiar, isn't it? And that makes sense. Anyone come up with that kind of answer? Oh, you beauty! All right, excellent. The second one is this, also pretty familiar. Oh no, we gave the third one away. The Son of Man came to seek and serve the lost. Again, that makes sense, doesn't it? Well, here's the third one and maybe more unexpected. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. This is something of the New Testament's way of describing Jesus' coming into the world. And what Michael Frost talks about is the fact that the first two, in a sense, give us a really good sense as to the purpose of Jesus' coming, his mission and purpose of the coming kingdom of God. Whereas the third one, and perhaps unexpected one, gives us a sense of his method. How did Jesus come? He came eating and drinking. But perhaps that shouldn't surprise us in any way because throughout the Old Testament, we see God's people celebrating God's goodness with food. Significant events in the redemptive story of Israel were marked each year with festivals and food. God's people would feast as recognition of God's gift of grace. And it's into that story that Jesus steps And what is it that he tells us that we should do every time we get together? We should eat. Funnily enough, one of the things that Jesus is accused of in Luke chapter 7 is being a drunkard and a glutton. Now, Jesus was none of those, neither of those things, but obviously he spent enough time eating and drinking with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes to give his enemies plenty of ammunition uh, for those kind of accusations. So in this beautifully subversive way, when this man who is accused of being a drunkard and a glutton gives his followers something to remember him by, he tells them to eat and drink in remembrance of him. To feast, therefore, and this is really important, to feast is not just a forming experience, although it is. To feast is not just about the enjoying the gift and grace of God in beautiful flavours. It is to walk in the very footsteps, of Jesus. And just a little glimpse into the meal times of Jesus give us a sense of the centrality of the meal table to Jesus' mission and community and the church's mission and community. Now, Robert Karras, another author, interestingly reflecting on the Gospel of Luke, says this that in Luke's Gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. His missional strategy all through the Gospels was a long meal stretching into the evening. He did evangelism and discipleship around a table with some grilled fish and a loaf of bread and a pitcher of wine. The Gospels are full of stories of Jesus eating with people. And meals are not just a missional strategy for Jesus. They are a vision of the Kingdom. They are a little foretaste of a bigger, better, new world, a different outlook on life. So the question for us this morning as we reflect on this practice of feasting, is how, what, how might we reframe our eating, our meal times, our practice of feasting, so that the meal table is central to our gathering and to our mission? And to help us answer that, I just want to reflect for a few minutes again on the work of author Tim Chester. Uh, he wrote a beautiful little book called "A Meal with Jesus." Um, and he highlights a number of things in that book, but I just want to draw our attention to four things, particularly this morning: that meal times can serve as enacted grace, enacted community, enacted hope and enacted mission. So first one, let's just talk about grace for a second. We can't underestimate the radical power of God's grace that is embodied in the meal times of Jesus. It's well documented. I don't think it's any surprise to anyone that Jesus crossed all kinds of social and cultural boundaries when it came to eating. He ate with all the wrong kinds of people. We see one of these examples and there's many, but just one of these examples in Luke chapter 5 when Jesus is having a great feast at the house of Levi the tax collector. Now, tax collectors were not just social outcasts. Uh, They were treated as co-conspirators with the Romans, the great kind of overlords of the Israelites. And so they were treated as enemies of God Himself. And here is Levi in Luke chapter 5 at a party with God's Messiah, with Jesus Himself. In a first century context, this is kind of scandalous grace. Because in the first century, and I would argue probably ever since, and maybe a whole lot before as well, meals have reinforced cultural boundaries. Who you ate with, who you sat next to at the meal table, defined your social status. The whole mealtime environment was crafted very carefully around these social boundaries. But Jesus turns those social conventions on their head as an enactment of God's incredible grace and inclusivity. A number of years ago, uh, now I had the chance to go uh, to a conference uh, to hear a guy called Brian Stevenson speak. Now, Brian is the is a lawyer and is the founder of an organisation called Equal Justice Initiative. And they work with, I suppose they work against mass incarceration in the south of the US. They work particularly with prisoners on death row or juvenile prisoners uh, that have been unfairly treated. Uh, He is a remarkable man. Um, He wrote a book called Just Mercy a number of years ago based on his experiences that was turned into a film a couple of years ago as well, which I can't recommend highly enough. The book is always way better than the film. But go look it up. It's about Brian's life. It's quite remarkable. Um, And to this day, I think the talk I heard from Brian at this conference was the most powerfully impacting talk I've ever heard, uh, just as he shared his stories. And one of the things that he made very clear, his opening salvo in this talk, which was amazing, was that we need to get proximate with those who are suffering. We need to get proximate with those who are suffering. And he went on to speak about the power of proximity, this sense that nothing really changes unless we allow ourselves to get close. And as I reflected on that again during the week, it made me think that he is absolutely right because it's almost impossible to demonstrate grace at a distance, isn't it? Like, yes, we can pray and yes, we can give money and yes, we can send good thoughts, but it's very difficult to demonstrate, to embody grace At a distance, we need to get proximate with those who need our grace. And therefore, if we are to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, we need to allow ourselves to get proximate with those who are desperately in need of the grace of Jesus and of our grace. And what better place to do that than at the table? Because that's where Jesus demonstrated that kind of grace. And so whether it be the hospitality of our church, the way that we open ourselves up, the way that we eat together, or whether that be the hospitality of our homes, the challenge is this. Are we simply reinforcing the social conventions of who we're supposed to eat with and sit next to and all those kinds of things? Or will we allow our meal tables to be a place where we embody, where we enact God's grace in our community? So that's the first one that, Chester talks about, which I think actually leads really well into the second point that he makes, which is about community. Meals inevitably bring us closer together. And again, if we delve into the Gospels briefly, in Luke chapter 7, there is this beautiful scene as Jesus eats in the house of a Pharisee. And unexpectedly, an uninvited woman slips in. She's a sinner. It makes it very clear. And she comes in to anoint Jesus' feet, first with her tears and then with some ointment. And it sounds a bit weird, but back in those days, if there was a meal like this happening, you know, Jesus is at a Pharisee's place, it tended to attract a crowd outside. That's never happened at my place. Uh, but that's the way it worked in the first century. There was a crowd kind of outside, but the, the, the kind of people that stood outside in the public area were certainly not expected to come in not to come in with the important people. And yet this woman slips in and as she slips in to anoint Jesus' feet, Jesus doesn't keep her at a distance. He doesn't turn her away. He treats her and he interacts with her with an incredible intimacy. Reclining at the table, Jesus allows her to come close. And again, it speaks to this idea that it's very easy for us to keep people at a distance, isn't it? To keep people almost like as acquaintances. I know you, I spend time with you, but I'll just, I'll keep you at a distance. That can happen in our city, in our suburb, it can happen here at church, it can even happen in our gospel groups. But it's almost impossible to keep people at a distance when we're sitting around a meal table eating together. Because meal times bring us close. Meals are a welcoming space. They, they create space for listening and for paying attention and providing. Meals inevitably slow us down. They force us to be people-oriented rather than task-oriented. Again, Michael Frost says this, that the table is a great equaliser in relationships. When we eat together, we discover the inherent humanity of all people. We share stories and hopes and fears and disappointments. And I'm sure that eating meals together is not the only way to build relationship and create community, but it has to be somewhere near the top of the list, doesn't it? Mealtimes are a place to enact, to build, to create community, to allow people to come close, just as Jesus did. Another beautiful um, biblical way of thinking about feasting is that mealtimes are enacted hope. Hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus came, the prophet Isaiah declared this, kind of casting into the future. He said, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will produce, or prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? And this became known as the Messianic Feast. An expectation, a hope, if you like, of a time when death would be defeated, when the world would be put right, when we would experience the fullness of God's coming world. The coming of God's kingdom is represented as a feast. Evidently, with the best marbled Wagyu steak you can imagine and just untold bottles of Penfolds Grange. It sounds like that kind of feast. And of course, there are other glimpses in the Bible as well, in the Gospels, the feeding of 5,000. It's not there in all its fullness, but it's a little glimpse of this coming Messianic feast. And we read in Matthew 22 of the the parable of the wedding feast where invitations go out to the most unexpected people in the end. And the point is this, that meals, biblically and right here and right now can become an enactment of the hope that we have a little glimpse, a little foretaste of God's future, a simple expression of God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven as we sit around a meal table together. And so when we as a church gather and help those that are in need, when we gather with each other, when we open up our homes, when we invite in community around the table, we give our world a little glimpse of God's coming world. Right here. Right now, in a tangible way, we can become a signpost of a new way of living, a new kind of community, a flourishing life, of restored relationships around a table. Our meals are a little foretaste of God's coming messianic banquet, a proclamation, a demonstration of the good news of God's kingdom. Our mealtimes can do that. And finally... Meals can be enacted mission. Mealtimes, feasting, food has always been central to God's mission in the world and the way that we participate in God's mission in the world. And I just want to actually illustrate this in an upside down way. Uh, Because again, it made me think during the week of a beautiful little movie, which which I don't think actually illustrates or couldn't illustrate what I'm talking about this morning any better. And that's a movie from 2000 called Chocolat. Anyone seen that? It's going back a bit now. Uh, If you want to watch a movie leading up to Easter, because it's set in Lent in a little French village, it's a beautiful film to watch. Not sure what streaming service it's on these days, but it's it's a great little movie. And the story is set around uh, this little French village uh, during the time of Lent, in the five weeks leading up to Lent. Uh, And... Vianne on the right-hand side there, she rolls into town, she's from out of town, she rolls into this very grey and bland French village with her daughter wearing this bright red cloak as a breath of fresh air. Uh, But she comes in during this very strict time of discipline, of Lent, into a very religious French village to open up a chocolate shop. And of all times to open up a chocolate shop, who would open it during Lent? Uh, And you can understand that this is quite scandalous in the community. The the community itself is a very strict religious one. And it particularly upsets the town mayor, who is a particularly bland and soulless character. But over the course of the movie, what we find is um, that the chocolate shop stands in stark contrast to the church. The church itself is legalistic and lifeless, And the chocolate shop is full of colour and life and flavour. And over the course of the movie, it's the chocolate shop and not the lifeless church that becomes a refuge for the abused, the outcasts and the curious. And of course, there is a beautiful scene in the movie where this eclectic group of people come together and share a feast and set against the greyness of the village, set against the, set against the legalism of the church. It's a picture of grace and of community, of belonging, of life, and ultimately of mission. And you'll be pleased to know if you haven't seen the movie that eventually the whole town he's won over, including the mayor himself, and he's won over by the hospitality of Vian. And finally, because of that hospitality, a message of grace rings out from the pulpit of the church. And hospitality, and this movie is a beautiful illustration of that, hospitality has a powerful missional quality. Think about Jesus himself. He didn't run projects or create programs or put on events. The Gospels record over and over and over again, Jesus ate meals. He practised missional feasting. And invites us to do the same. Alan Hirsch, just to finish off, Alan Hirsch and uh, Lance Ford, a couple of missional strategists, talk about this, that sharing meals, if I keep pointing, there we go, sharing meals together on a regular basis is one of the most sacred practices we can engage in as believers. Missional hospitality is a tremendous opportunity to extend the kingdom of God. We can literally eat our way into the kingdom of God. So as we close, it's fair to say that we don't need much encouragement to feast, do we? You know, it's 11 o'clock, we're probably starting to think about lunch. None of us need much encouragement to engage in this practice. That's kind of the easy part. But we can be intentional about how we eat and who we eat with. The way that we feast together. So my encouragement as we finish this morning is this, for me and for you and for us as our community, may our meal tables be places where God's gift of delicious food is celebrated. And start that at lunch today. Celebrate the delicious array of flavours that God has given us. May our meal tables be places where life is shared and where lives are formed. May our meal tables be places of grace and inclusion, and community. May there be places of mission. And particularly as we lead up to Easter next weekend, and of course we come together next Sunday to celebrate the resurrection, may our meal tables be places of resurrection life where we signpost God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Let's just pray. Gracious God, we thank you so much for, for who you are and the way that you have gifted us with the opportunity to eat. And that seems so, like such a trite thing to say, but uh, we want to stop and reflect on your goodness and your grace to us. Thank you for the way that you provide for us in so many ways. And, and we don't want to take that for granted. We reflect that in many other parts of the world, food is not easy to come by but we thank you for the way that you provide for us in so many different ways. And God, we thank you for the example of Jesus, the way that Jesus around the table allowed the most unexpected people to come close, to be invited into his kingdom. We thank you for the example that gives us that that as we think about the way that we practise hospitality in our church community and in our homes during the week, may they be places where, where people can have their lives formed and have their lives transformed um, by your grace at work embodied around the table in our homes and in our church. And Father, as we lead up to Easter next weekend, may we just be mindful of, again, Jesus' incredible obedience and grace, his death and his resurrection offering us a new life. And we pray that as we try and live out that new life, wherever that you send us, that we may be people who give others around us that little glimpse, a little foretaste of your coming world. And we thank you, we live in that hope, that what we see and experience now is not all there is to see and experience, but you are making all things new. And you're inviting us to show the world around us what that looks like. So we just pray that as we go this morning, we go with your Spirit and we go with your example and we go with your empowerment and we thank you for all of those things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Alrighty, I think that's about it. I, have we got coffee this morning? We have got coffee. I was gonna say, uh, we don't actually, I'm not sure if we've got any food out there. We've been talking about